you're listening to Magnifico Radio. I'm your host, Kate Black, and each week I sit down with leaders, makers, and designers at the forefront of sustainability to discuss their journeys and motivation. Whether it's ethical fashion, clean beauty, or sustainable products, they're all doing something Magnifico. Today's show is brought to you by the Detox Market, the most trusted source of clean beauty since 2010. Are you looking for organic skincare, natural makeup, and other green beauty products to detoxify your life? Check out the Detox Market with stores in L.A., Toronto, and online. One thing I try to remind people is, like, first of all, yes, to some degree we shopped our way into this problem, but on the other hand, a lot of this has, it's not our fault. It's not our fault. We did not write the trade deals that created this system. We do not run these companies that are polluting in other places. Um, yeah, there's so much of this that has nothing to do with us. And so I just I just don't want people to come into this feeling bad. She was my very first guest back in September 2016. And now, one year and 52 episodes later, she's back to pick up our conversation on fashion, textile waste, and climate change. I'm joined by Elizabeth Klein, the New York-based journalist and author of Overdressed, the shockingly high cost of cheap fashion, the acclaimed 2012 expose on the environmental and social impacts of the global fashion industry. As a leading expert on textile waste, she serves as the Director of Research and Reuse at Wearable Collections, a New York-based textile recycling company, and is at work on a documentary about the secret world of secondhand clothing, produced by Film First. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be back, and I can't believe it's been over a year since the last time we did this. I'm, I know. It's, it's crazy. Time is flying. <laughs> um, so before we started recording, we were just talking about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, one of the leading organizations um, pushing circularity for the fashion industry, has just come out with a new report. Um, and for the fashion industry, they're interested in circularity because that means shifting our business model from a linear make, sell, wear, discard to something that captures the whole value in the textiles and either make sure it continues its life of being worn or that it's going to capture or recycle going into a capture or recycle stream rather than end up in landfill or incineration. Not every country is the same, but in the est- it estimates that three-fifths of all garments end up in landfill or are burned within their first year of life. And the MacArthur Report estimates that that's $500 billion of value lost every year due to clothing, what they call underutilization and the lack of recycling. I know you love the economic model of this industry. What do you think about that number? Yeah, that... That's a really, that's a really big number. Um, I, I was shocked when I read it. I, and I'm glad that we have a long time to really dig into this issue on this episode um, because I would, I would like to know how they came up with that figure. I work in the secondhand clothing industry, and my life and perspective on this issue has been completely transformed from dealing directly with used clothes. So I physically dig through and sort used clothes every week, thousands of pounds of used clothes every week. And in my experience, it's actually quite difficult to extract value out of most used clothes. So um, I think for me, it's, uh, I do see textile waste as a huge opportunity. And, um, you know, I think there is value and money to be made there, but it's, we have a really difficult 
road ahead of us. Um, most used clothing is completely worthless. So unless we're talking about developing innovations that are going to create a lot of money for companies, then yeah, it's it's. I think it's more complicated than that. Well, the way that I read the report was actually all the inputs that go into to manufacture it. So all the inputs that go in to create the fiber, to do the, the garment manufacturing, and then to have it only have one life. I think that was what they were trying to capture as lost value. Yeah. Because you, you in the time before, let's say pre-1996, when the whole industry just kind of went sideways and, and started to race ahead, those garments, all that all that input energy had longevity. Like we have garments from that era still. Yeah. So I think the the collapsing of, of the durability of of that era versus now is maybe how they were calculating it. Do you think? Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, I think what they what they are hoping to do is undo uh, the system, the fast fashion system that we have created. And 1996 is such a great year. It's like the turning point, right, when all of this stuff happened, whether you're talking about globalization or, um, you know, the rise of Chinese manufacturing. All these things started to change around that point. And, yeah, we switched from this seasonal, more rational model of selling clothes, uh, making clothes that were more durable, putting some craftsmanship into it because the idea was the person was going to buy it to wear it, not buy it to throw it away or consume a trend and then move on. Um, So I certainly am uh, very intrigued and excited by a broad conversation happening about changing some of these really awful, you know, negative trends that have happened in the fashion industry over the last 20 years. And so you mentioned earlier your work now in in secondhand clothing and and kind of going through all of that. What percentage, have you been measuring at all? Like what kind of percentage is, has value as a second life, as its purpose, as it was created? I would say that what I see at wearable collections, probably it mirrors um, the statistics across the industry, which is about uh, you know, 60% is rewearable and about 40% is um, needs to be recycled. So it's either too stained or too uh, just worn out, you know, like threadbare um, or has odors or something like that. Um, but within that 60% that is rewearable, there's also a really wide range of value. Um, and I, I think one thing that's interesting is is I've seen a lot of online resale companies starting up in the last uh, five years. So ThreadUp and Swap.com are probably the two biggest players. And Vestier? Well, yeah, I'm talking specifically about mass. They sell mass market clothes. So they're trying to figure out how to extract value out of all of the TJ Maxx and the Banana Republic and, you know, the Gap and the clothes that are, that's the bulk of what's in the waste stream. And what's interesting is ThreadUp, first of all, they're not accepting donations until January unless you have luxury items. So I think everyone is sort of struggling right now with how to make money off that really tough part of the the business, which is the TJ Maxx, like, 
you know, JCPenney clearance items and all the stuff that most of us buy. Well, because maybe one of the the key things that's attractive about those items is the newness, right? They're not mm-hmm. necessarily attractive as a secondhand item, maybe because they don't have any of the things that we associate with the secondhand. They're not kitsch. They're not chic. They're not hard to find. They're not, yeah. you know, unique in any way. The hard to find thing is such an important component of it. Um, if a brand is really ubiquitous, then it's uh, it suppresses its value in the secondhand market. That's why designer clothes have higher value because they are more literally more exclusive. They are rare. They're much there are fewer pieces of them, so therefore people are more willing to pay a premium for them. For them, I mean, there's other obviously other things that go into it, but that's that hard to find aspect of it is is a really big thing that drives the value of secondhand clothes. And so this report also said that our usability um, has dropped in this in this time that fashion has accelerated and almost doubled its production. We've dropped um, like 35% of how long we would wear something. And so I hear we hear some numbers bandied around. It's like seven wears or 30 wears. Do you what do you think is driving that? And, and can we get it back? Oh my goodness, can we get it back? I hope, I hope. Um, So what's driving it is a lot of different factors. One is simply just the the low price of clothing. Um, it's, you know, kind of turned it into more of a discretionary purchase. It's it's very cheap to just walk into a store and, you know, for the cost of a fast food meal, fast food meal, you can buy an outfit. And I think that that's really alluring for people. And I totally understand it. That's, that's the person that I was before I wrote Overdressed. And, you know, especially because so much, there's so many things in our lives that aren't affordable anymore. You know, healthcare, our rent, our education, and then clothing, it's like, well, at least we've got cheap fashion. So on that level, it kind of just feels good to just go in and buy something that's really cheap. So I completely understand the appeal of it and understand why people participate in it. Um, and I and then I think the other thing, especially in the United States, that gets overlooked is how much we're marketed to. And that has changed the way that we receive marketing, but it's happening on Instagram and social media, Facebook. We are constantly being um, told to buy. And I think in our minds, it's very normal process. Um, There's absolutely nothing unusual about, you know, okay, I bought something last month. Why not buy something this month? It's just, it's fast fashion and cheap fashion has just completely rewritten the rules of the way we think about and consume clothes. Can we put the genie back in the bottle? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I think something very systemic would have to change, which is why a report like this is so kind of exciting to know that there are people, brands, and people on this really high level having that conversation and wanting to go that direction. Um, another report that I read this week also said that consumer goods price index has gone up about 60% over that same period. So so the price of goods that we buy, everything else that's in our house is, has kind of gone up over um, 60%, whereas fashion and apparel has only gone up 3%. Wow. So it's a fake, it's a fake affordability that is really kind of 
inserted itself into this industry and maybe is what's causing so much excess. So if we talk about addressing the price issue, how do we keep the how do we keep the um, the socioeconomic group that really benefits from cheap clothes in the conversation? Oh my gosh, when I think about what we've lost economically because of fast fashion, we lost, you know, two million textile and garment jobs to get what? To get cheap fashion. Like I don't think that 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 is a good trade-off. And again, you're talking about working class people who who took that hit. Um, so just from that standpoint, I think that middle class and working class Americans really got the short end of the stick when we switched to this fast fashion system. Um, the other piece of it is that, you know, we also know that it's often poor and working class people who take the brunt of environmental destruction from fast fashion. And that's whether it's, you know, a textile mill in the United States or whether it's in Bangladesh or India or China. Um, And the third thing I would say is that, you know, especially because we're talking about textile waste, um, there's not there's nothing wrong with buying clothes you can afford, everyone has always done that. I think what what is really crazy about the way Americans shop is they they use that low price as an excuse to accumulate more clothes than they could ever possibly wear or make good use out of. And there's even consumer studies that show that that's very frustrating for people. And they, they ultimately get to this place where their closet's very chaotic and they don't, it's like you can't even find something in your closet anymore. Yeah, I just had this conversation this past week just about that affordability and then it, and and how to kind of rewrite it so that if you can afford more that you would pay more because maybe that maybe that's what the consumer responsibility is that you need to address it from your own socioeconomic status and and not use as you say the the low price as an excuse to just kind of buy mindlessly. Mm-hmm. This whole conversation is tied to why we have so much inequality in the United States now. It's like you can't really separate any of these things out. Um, like, you know, we, through the process of globalization over the last 20 years, the same exact system that's given us fast fashion is also why we have so much poverty in the United States and so much inequality in the United States now. So it's, you know, it's it's just the ultimate irony that, you know, uh, fast fashion, it's almost like it's contributed to people's downward mobility. And yeah, now they're in this position where there's so many people who are in this position that that's all they can afford or that, you know, maybe not all they can afford, but that, yeah, that that's where they're at. Well, that it's a reasonable price point given yeah. their their kind of state of life at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a, I think that for me, like even looking at the decline of department stores in the United States, I think a lot of that has to do with increasing inequality. There's not that middle anymore. It's, there's not that that group of Americans who feels like they're year after year getting ahead and feeling prosperous and thinks to themselves, I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go buy something a little bit nicer. I'm going to go treat myself because I can trust that ne- next year my paycheck is going to be bigger than last year. So we have a lot of really, um, really important economic problems to address in this country, but they're they're completely tied to everything that we're talking about within fast fashion, too. 
I think. Okay, and it's interesting because we're coming up on holiday season, so I think this is a very interesting podcast for people who are maybe on their way to go shopping into the mall. So how do you handle it? Because since your book, um, and anybody who follows you on Insta can see that now you are a vintage secondhand maven. So how did how did your life change? And then how do how do the people around you, how did they augment their consumption based on on knowing you and being in your circle? One thing that people often tell me is that they read they read the book, they read Overdressed, and then they they just shopped a lot less. And you know, sometimes they'll talk about it from this place of guilt, but um, I think for most people, and myself included, it just the guilt falls away at some point. And what it does is it de- demyst like knowing all this stuff just demystifies shopping. It just opens your eyes. So when you're walking through a mall or a store, you're just thinking about clothing a lot differently. I mean, your eyes are open. Um, And I think that that makes shopping a lot more interesting and satisfying because you just have a connection. There's a connection there and an awareness there. And that always feels better than going through life in the dark or, um, or just doing something without any thought or intention. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially with the the minimalism movement that's happening right now, a lot of people are, I feel like, just like questioning um, consumerism, American consumerism, which is so crazy because this is like, this has been our way of life for over a half century. And now people are like, wait a minute, what what is, what am I getting out of this? But yeah, in terms of how it's made me change my approach to shopping, I mean, it's just been a total transformation. I do, most of my wardrobe is secondhand, but that's also because I work in secondhand. So some people think that I don't buy anything new and that's, that's not, that's not totally true. Um, yeah, I've just, I really enjoy buying really high quality, beautiful, a lot of designer and luxury brands. And I, I usually do buy those items secondhand because I could never afford them new. (laughs) It's true. I love that you talk about the guilt because when we've had designers sitting in that chair, that's what they talk about as well. So it feels it feels like we're in this flux. Um, I just I ran into a woman who's been doing some research for Okatex and talking about what happened um, in her research when she started to ask questions about consumer behavior and consumer habits. And then she gave some facts and some details about the industry and then how they changed their answers after. And so I think that we're in a stage where maybe consumers don't want to know. And there's that hard point when you do know, right, that makes yeah. you feel bad or, or guilty about shopping. And then you can get to this new place, like the new ethical designers who can be happy about creating timeless pieces or pieces that are made to last. And consumers can get to this place where they know Mm -hmm. they can navigate and make really thoughtful choices about the kind of things that they're purchasing and maybe kind of get that feeling back, especially since we're going into a holiday season where consumption and gifting Mm -hmm. is is such a key part of the holiday and the way that we express ourselves. Yeah, and such an important part of the economy too. I mean, retailers make most of their money this time of year. And yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's so fascinating to me, uh, and one thing I try to remind people is, like, first of all, yes, to some degree we shopped our way into this problem. But on the other hand, a lot of this has – it's not our fault. It's not our fault. We did not write the trade deals 
that created this system. We do not run these companies that are polluting in other places. Um, yeah, there's so much of this that has nothing to do with us. And so I just I just don't want people to come into this feeling bad because it's clothing. Clothing is something that's supposed to make you feel so wonderful and confident and excited. And that's one thing that really drives me crazy about fast fashion. I feel like I meet more people now who are like, oh, yeah, I don't care about clothes or I don't care about fashion. And I'm just like, that's so sad because it's so important. It's so important. Um, But yeah, uh, so the guilt thing. The other thing is like some of the easiest things you can do. I love that statistic. Um, I think it was the what's the UK based organization? Um, Rap. They have that statistic that if you just wear the clothes in your closets for in your closet, or you might have multiple closets, as I used to, um, if you wear your clothes for just six to nine months longer, it slashes the carbon impact of your wardrobe by 30%. You know, that that's not that's not a sacrifice, really. It's it, you know, it's not it's not someone wagging their finger in your face and being like, you have to buy an organic uh, hemp dress from a fair trade store or something, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy shift, I think. Well, and then back to the durability factor, right. Of, of where we were before, because you wouldn't buy something that you couldn't wear for eight or nine months if that was your driving principle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I like that too. And my, one of my other favorite things from the minimalist movement is to not look at the price. So I borrowed that from them. So when I go shopping, I look at the garment, I try on the garment, and I just decide, do I love this garment? Because I'm such I'm such a sucker for a deal that I know that that's my trigger, and all of a sudden I'll start rationalizing the price, and I'll make that decision based on whether or not I think it's good value, as opposed to, do I really love it, and am I going to wear the crap out of it? So for me, that's how I kind of rewrite it so that I can buy things that I actually just really love. I look in the mirror, I love it, um, I don't have like you I don't have the disposable income to spend any money on anything but I shop less frequently and in stores that I can afford so that that's not always going to be a shocker (laughs) sneak up on you yeah one thing that I have switched to in the last year is um, setting a seasonal clothing budget Um, so that way if I'm just buying one item and it's it's kind of got the like sticker shock element to it it feels much better if I know I'm still below what I'm supposed to be spending for this season. And I've started using a, um, a budgeting app on my smartphone, and that's been really useful too. So I know I'm always aware of the money that is coming out of my bank account that's going into my wardrobe. And I think that that, that could be useful for other people as well. It's um, you never with your, your clothes, you, you, you don't want to get into that habit of it just being this thing that this kind of like the slow leak out of your bank account. Cause I mean, that can happen. It happened to me when I uh, was buying uh, fast fashion, but it can also happen to you if you're an ethical shopper yeah. very easily. Uh, so yeah, that's just another thing that I've enjoyed in my own life is how this, all this awareness has made, it's even taught me some a little bit of financial savvy. <laughs> okay, we need to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Today's episode is made possible through the support of our sponsor, Bank & Vogue, global leaders in the innovative and relevant solutions to the crisis of stuff. The family business is one of the largest brokers and agents of used goods in North America. 
With the addition of their new manufacturing facility, they can create on-demand, on-trend items using your post-consumer branded goods. Interested in unique solutions to waste that your customers and sustainability officer will love? Visit bankvogue.com to learn more. You're listening to Magnifico Radio. This is Kate Black, and I'm sitting here with Elizabeth Klein. And we were talking about consumption, but now we're going to shift gears. And I wanted to talk to you about textiles, and particularly what I've seen happening in the industry, which is that the industry seems to be moving towards a preferred textile approach. How? What do you think about that as kind of an industry fix? What is that? <laughs> so the preferred textile approach is that they're doing life cycle assessments on textiles and then they're making they're making more um, economic and scientific assessments about which textiles they use in the system based on, for example, polyester will have microplastics and, and, and shed into the waterway. Cotton doesn't have maybe the longevity of a recycled poly and using LCAs to make the the decision about where they move their manufacturing. Because right now we're at 60% synthetic and about 30% cotton or natural-based fibers. I Yeah, so one thing that I was reading in this, in the report... Um, redesigning, redesigning fashion's future. Yeah, redesigning fashion's future. So um, they were talking about uh, some of the, the chemical and mechanical, no, mostly chemical textile recycling innovations that are coming out. And I didn't realize that a lot of them were at a place where they were basically going to be able to turn um, natural fibers, I think, back into cellulosic fibers. So this means recycling cotton into a rayon, basically. Um, And uh, I have to be totally honest, it made me a little bit sad. I, I prefer cotton over uh, rayon and really any cellulosic fiber just from a uh, wearability, um, uh, the feel, the drape. I, I like cotton. Um, and I hope that we can balance out this great, this tremendous need to make this industry more sustainable with uh, good design choices, which has a lot to do with um, fiber choice. Um, and I understand that I don't, it, it's like if we look at a life cycle analysis and it says, okay, 100% recycled polyester is the most sustainable thing, well, that doesn't change the fact that merino wool is like, you know, the most exquisite fabric to make a sweater out of or you know that a leather handbag is just there's no comparison um between those fabrics so I I guess for me that's what it conjures (laughs) and so that let's just use that as the pivot point for is that a good fix for the industry what do you think the industry needs to be doing or focusing on to kind of get this under control yeah so I think that um some of, I don't know, I think I think that I, I'm really into this kind of coming at it from all directions <laughs> approach, which is if you're using cotton, how do you make the most sustainable cotton product? If you're using polyester, how do you make the, more, the most sustainable polyester product? Um, I don't think that blends, blended fabrics are going to go away. I sew. 
I'm just being realistic. So wouldn't it be a better use of time and money to figure out how to use chemical recycling to separate fabrics and um, uh, recycle that material? And they do they do mention that in the report, this idea of moonshot innovations. There's absolutely no reason why we can't figure that out. I think that there just really hasn't been the the interest and the research and development into it. Um, I also think that we we really just need to be collecting more used clothes. In the public's mind, there's so much confusion about what which parts of their unwanted clothes can be donated. I think that there's still the perception that if something is worn out, it should go into the garbage. Um, so we need public education too. I mean, that's a really actually going to be a huge part of it. And I'm wondering where that money is going to come from. Like, you know, our H and M has been doing some good work around public education and textile recycling. But I mean, we need we need a bigger push. People still aren't really aware aware of this. I see clothes in the garbage cans in my neighborhood all the time, like it, several times a week. I would say so. That message isn't isn't out there. And that's a generational shift, right? Because in our parents' generation, they actually, that nothing was ever thrown away. And now we've gotten to this stage where I think in North America, I think almost everybody throws something away. So if they put everything in the stream, do you think that that would save us? (laughs) It's going to be so crazy when that happens because right now... um, we're diverting in the United States uh, 3.8 billion pounds of clothing from landfills, and then 21 billion pounds <laughs> are going into the landfill. So, yeah, trying to trying to picture what what we're going to do with it once we keep it out of the landfills is exciting, but it's also scary because I'm assuming that a lot of that material is probably in pretty bad condition. That's one of the reasons why it ended up there to begin with. Um, but I don't know, all of these all of these companies are kind of working on textile recycling innovations right now. So I, I trust that we're at a turning point. I mean, even in that report, it just seemed like there there are companies all around the world now trying to come up, be the first to kind of come up with the best textile recycling solution. Um, so hopefully all these things will kind of happen at the same time. It's true. I like that report, too, because it said that um, the clothing and apparel industry is really only responsible for about 60% of all textiles. So maybe the other industries, automobile, home, um, probably any sort of transportation, could figure out ways to take a lot of that. So when you're when you're sorting and you're going through the recycling center, what are some of the streams that you're diverting to? Um... Well, the way that the way that wearable collections works right now is mostly just volume. So what that means is my part of the business is taking out only the best of the best of the best of the best, the very the one percent that's a you know a designer dress or um, uh, you know yeah designer shoes, and then uh, the rest of it is just bailed up and sold by the pound. Uh, and that includes the um, unwearable stuff as well. So it's actually these companies that we sell this material to that would be going through it and figuring out what to do with it. You know, whether it's going to go to a, a textile recycler, um, and I by recycler I mean downcycler, someone that's going to be turning it into 
insulation and shredding it, or um, it would be exported to countries around the world. But all of that said, the plan for wearable collections over the next uh, couple of years is to move more into innovating. What are some new things we can be doing with these materials, whether it's bringing in designers and, and trying to get a pipeline going? If designers want to do an upcycled collection, we want to be the place that they come to and they say, I need 100 pounds of denim. I need, uh, you know, all the leather scraps you've got. We want to be the place where um, people can turn to for materials. And we also want to be a place where, you know, people who work in textile recycling or design um, or work at one of these big fashion brands, if they just need material, they need to touch material in order to come up with solutions, we want to be the the company that provides that. So we, we're trying to pivot too, along with, it seems like everybody in the industry is now like textile waste, textile waste, textile waste. What are we going to do with all of this stuff? So yeah, I think that this next year is going to be a big one for us for figuring out new, new strategies. And so how does the documentary and the movie play into all of that? So the documentary, um, I, actually just partnered with a production company on it. And I'm so excited about that because that means it's actually going to get finished. Um, I am fortunate that I got more and more involved with what Wearable Collections is doing. So a lot of this past year for me was split between coming up with this new vision for Wearable Collections along with the, the, the founder of that company, um, and doing public speaking and advocacy around textile waste and the environmental impact of fast fashion. And it looks like next year is going to be me circling back around to getting this documentary done. And it is all about this subject. Um, so I think the timing is going to be really, really pretty, <laughs> pretty good since people seem interested in this. Now. It is a hot, hot topic. Yeah. And so when you are out speaking, what are you addressing when it comes to textile waste? Are you addressing consumers or industry or designers or both? I usually am talking to, to college students or um, civic groups. So I talk about, uh, you know, individual consumption. What are we um, as regular people responsible for in our everyday lives as it's connected to textile waste? And um, I love talking about it. Uh, because people are just like completely blown away by the scale of the problem and the fact that uh, just the way the whole industry work is such, works is such a mystery to most people. You know, this this idea that you drop clothing off at a charity and that's just the first stop. <laughs> and then it's probably going to go to all of these other places, including a con another country on the other side of the world. Um, but I also have been talking this past year in... Uh, you know, you and I were talking about this, I think, before the, re the recording started, is in the United States, it seems that we've kind of maybe, maybe reached peak fashion. Like our annual consumption of clothing is not going up that much. Um, in fact, I think it may have even gone down a little bit. But now the issue is that uh, consumers in Asia, in India and China, um, are becoming middle class. So um, the impacts of the fashion industry are escalating exponentially. So 
all these conversations that we've been having for years, like, you know, a half a decade I've been in this, um, they are just going to get, you know, kind of catastrophic overnight. And that's another thing that I've folded into my talks is that this isn't just about us anymore. It's just not just about Americans anymore. It's not just about Canadians anymore. It's all of us. Like we all, everybody around the world has to work together to figure out how to make the fashion industry sustainable and we need to do it fast. Yeah, I'm just looking for that stat from the report. So it said demand for clothing is continuing to grow, driven particularly by emerging markets such as Asia and Africa. Should growth continue as expected, total clothing sales would reach 160 million tons by 2050, more than three times today's amount. So we're just going to, this industry is not going to slow down. Well, I mean, it's, if it doesn't slow down, it's going to have to radically shift the way that it operates. Um, there's another report. I wish I could remember where I read this, but I mean, just the issue of water. So we know we're entering um, an era of water scarcity. So by 2040, the UN says 40% of the world's population is going to live in an area that has um, limited access to fresh water. And at the same time, if fashion production's going up and cotton production continues to scale up, that's just not that's not a workable situation. Water has to go to people over crops, um, or it's crops that are grown for clothing. Uh, so it, it's like all of these things that we've been talking about as theoreticals are. I mean, we're going to have to change. I think to me that's what I hear and realize when I see those figures. Yeah, I think, and and right now the the contrib- contribution of fashion to greenhouse gas emissions and to climate change is is still relatively small. But a because they they haven't measured the entire supply chain, so we've only been measuring tier one. So by the time we get through the entire supply chain, we're going to recognize what the full impact is. And then the second thing is once we continue to grow, they reckon that fashion will will take up a large portion, almost a quarter of what's going to contribute to that above 2% or 2 degrees Celsius, 2C as they call it. So so fashion is going to start to get on everybody's radar, not just you know economists and not just fashionistas, but scientists and climatologists and everybody else in the, in the very near future. Yeah, I think I read that by 2030, if we don't change a thing about the way we produce clothes, the carbon impact of the fashion industry will increase by another 60%. So, yeah, Something, something's got to give. <laughs> well, are we just the happy little podcast today? <laughs> okay, well, let's switch because people always want to know what's going on with you and I want to know what's going on with you. Um, so when you came, I think I had these three questions or maybe I developed them right after your episode, but I have three standard questions that I always ask. So if your life had a motto, what would it be? <laughs> no, you didn't ask me that. I'm so bad at stuff like that. What's yours? It doesn't have to be a motto. It, it could be something like a mantra or something that you kind of say to yourself over and over again or something that just keeps going. I say, I say to myself, one foot in front of the other. So at times when I like just need to keep going, I'm just like, okay, one foot in front of the other. <laughs> um, my mantra. I would say 
I would say in the last couple of years, I've just been, and this isn't going to have some ring to it. You wouldn't be able to put this on a t-shirt, but um, I, I don't know. Maybe I can just boil it down to saying be true to yourself. I feel like I've been, uh, there have been things, paths that I've gone down over the last five or six years uh, that were not the right paths for me. And then the last two years has been me coming back to the things that I am truly passionate about. And it's crazy how you can just feel it when you kind of come back to what you're supposed to be doing. And I don't know. I don't know why anyone would try to would live any other way, but it just happens sometimes. Sometimes you just get off track. So that that's something that I've been thinking about. And who or what inspires you? I would say reading uh, books about economics. <laughs> what a nerd. Yes, we should just call this. I'm thinking of starting oh my another gosh. podcast called Geek Talk. Oh my gosh. What? Yeah, look, my... My boyfriend, there's like this in the morning, I'm not allowed to talk to him after he wakes up, especially if I'm reading, because he's just like, I can't right now. Like, I don't want to hear about like globalization at 830 in the morning. Like, I just get really excited about it. (laughs) And what about it is inspiring to you? Like, what, why is that, why is that topic captivating you? Um, It's because, uh, especially given what's going on in the political system right now, I feel like I get, and so does everybody else, like mired down in the day-to-day kind of what's right in front of our faces of what's happening. And for me, economics is that big picture. It allows you to step back and be like, this is all a puzzle. All of this stuff is fitting together in this really broad way. And I mean, even like what's happening in the White House is just like one small piece of that I find it comforting I do so knowledge is comfort maybe that should be your motto um (laughs) so what's next on your bucket list what are you what are you working towards uh I mean we've pretty much covered covered the big things that I'm working on um finishing my documentary is I I mean last year I just I kind of just I didn't even really think about it because I I wasn't, you know, I knew I needed a producer. I knew I needed help. I knew I needed funding. And then it just kind of all came together suddenly. So for me, I'm like, I'm really pumped about that. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about visual storytelling because I come out of a print background and I think that it's a more powerful medium for most people. So yeah, learning those new skills is going to be uh, an exciting thing to, to check off. Um, so how can people find out more? How can they get in touch? How can they find you to get you to speak at their event? <laughs> um, overdressthebook.com has all of my contact info. And as we've mentioned a couple times, I uh, am pretty active on Instagram. So I like interacting with people on that platform. Yes, everybody should follow her. And it's Elizabeth with a Z. L. Klein, Elizabeth L. Klein at Instagram. 
Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, and that's been another episode of Magnifico Radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. Have something to share, want to recommend a guest? Email me at radio at Magnifico, and that's M-A-G-N-I-F-E-C-O dot com. I'm Kate Black. Thanks for listening. <laughs>